I'm Alice Thornycroft and this is Brilliant Minds in Conversation, the podcast series where we share the insights and stories of individuals who've performed at the very top of their careers. Now, before I formally introduce our guest today, I'm going to ask Harvey to explain what was it about our guest that made him want to promote her to all our clients? The reason I have always wanted to promote this particular person is based on an event that we did together, which was down in Bournemouth. And I've worked with some very, very interesting people over the years. And if you have any notoriety, generally, that comes with a huge list of requirements. And um, this particular person was asked to do this job. She came down from the northeast, overnighted in London, then caught the train down from London to Bournemouth. And rather than us organise a car, she came on a scooter to the event. She arrived early, was gracious and humble. And that doesn't always happen with the people have notoriety and for that reason I continue to want to promote this particular person and I am delighted that she's doing this for us today. Thank you Harvey. Well for those of you who haven't already guessed our Brilliant Minds guest today is Dame Tanny Gray-Thompson, Britain's best known para-Olympian. Tani has amassed 11 gold medals in five consecutive Olympic Games. She also won six London marathons and achieved a total of 34 world records. Since retiring from competitive sport, Tani has taken an active role in the House of Lords, particularly on campaigns and legislation around disability. In 2005, she became Dame Tani Gray-Thompson for her services to sport. And in March 2010, Tani was created a life peer and was conferred as Baroness Grey Thompson of Eagles Cliff in the county of Durham. I'm particularly excited to welcome Tani to our Brilliant Minds conversation. So welcome. Thank you very much. Tani, I'd love to know a little bit about your childhood, if I could. What type of person, what type of child were you? <laughs> Probably annoying, I think, is the one that comes back to me most from my family. Um, Apparently, I, I went through terrible twos for, for quite a few years. I don't remember any of this. I always thought I was delightful and lovely, but apparently uh, I, I wasn't. So I was born in Cardiff. I've got spina bifida. I could walk a little bit when I was young, but then my um, spine collapsed. And it's uh, my vertebra severed my spinal cord. Didn't miss a day of school. There wasn't any pain. And, you know, actually that sort of had a big impact. I think my, my parents actually just, you know, they didn't allow people to discriminate against me. That had a huge impact on my life that I wasn't wrapped in cotton wool. It was, okay, you know, get out there and do things. And, um, yeah, my, my parents were amazing. But uh, I remember being about seven and my dad was an architect and he showed me this book of amazing buildings around the world I had pictures of the Sydney Opera House and the Taj Mahal and he told me the world was an amazing place and I needed to travel and to do that I needed a really good job and to do that I needed a really good education so that had a massive impact on my life and then uh, it was about 10 years ago and dad was ill and we knew we didn't have much time left and I, I sort of said do you remember that time and it was a really important point in my life and like thank you and he's like don't remember it went, oh okay great thanks for that my sister's killing herself laughing there next to the bed and um he, he eventually said to me, well, actually, you were just an annoying child and we didn't want you living at home forever. So, you know, I'm glad he told me, you know, the world's an amazing place, not actually um, how annoying I was. <laughs> and you've travelled, obviously, enormously in your career in sport. Tell us a little bit about, you say your parents didn't wrap you in cotton wool. What did that allow you or afford you in terms of how you viewed the world and your attitude to that? I think they tried to help us believe, you know, that it's okay to put yourself in challenging positions and it's okay to fail. 
and, and that's hard, you know, to do. And I think it'd been really easy once I became a wheelchair user for my parents to not allow me to do things. My father refused to make a house wheelchair accessible because he didn't want to make it the only place I could ever live. I think at the time there were people who thought they were being quite mean to me, to be honest. But actually that meant that I had loads of independence, that I could move where I wanted and, you know, go to uni and travel the world and, and live in actually sometimes some quite inaccessible places. So I think what they did was just um, not stop me doing things. You know, so whether it was trying to climb a tree or, you know, do different sports, which I was completely useless at most of them, they, they were very encouraging about trying to do things and to see what I wanted to do with my life. And what sports did you try at school? What were the sports that you... Uh... <laughs> Everything. I mean, uh, swimming, I highlighted my swimming career as I fell to drown. Just, apparently <laughs> that was really bad. Um, you know, tennis, basketball, you know, netball, just lots and lots of different things. I was 12 when I started doing wheelchair racing and that, that just connected to me. Um, but I grew up in a really sporty house, so mum loved watching sport, dad played sport. I was brought up to believe that Gareth Edwards is the closest thing to perfection that will ever walk this earth. Um, my mum was quite biased about that. So, you know, sport was a, a part of our life because of mum and dad's interest in it. And your sister, was she sporty? <laughs> no, not, not at, at all. all. No. <laughs> it's really interesting. So she's, you know, I would have a competition over putting my socks on. She doesn't care. You know, so I, I think I used to get a bit frustrated about that, that I'd want to compete against her. And she had no interest what, whatsoever. So it's kind of funny. It's that nature nurture, isn't it? Same family, same upbringing, but, you know, quite different in, in a lot of ways. Now, you, you always went to a mainstream school, didn't you? And that wouldn't have happened if your mum and dad hadn't fought for that. How important was that in terms of your, your you know, start in life? Oh, it was so important because I could walk when I started school. And then once I became paralysed, I should have been taken out and sent to special school. And our head teacher, Mr. Thomas, just realised that would be awful, that I wouldn't get an education. And then I thought I was going to go to the same school my sister was at. Then we had a letter from Sean's head teacher, which said, um, dear Mr. and Mrs. Gray, you know, we've noticed Tanny's in a wheelchair. Well done. Um, and um, I basically said, we don't take people like Tanny at our school. And so my parents knew how you know, the political system worked and found the work of Mary Warnock, Baroness Warnock, who'd done a load of work in terms of educating disabled children. And some of her latest work had a couple of lines in there which said I had the right to be educated in the best environment for me. And then my parents used that and they threatened to sue the Secretary of State for Wales over my right to go to a mainstream school and made themselves um, pretty unpopular. Um, and I got to go to mainstream school. But at the time, um, there was one school in South Glamorgan that took wheelchair users and they only took 30. That was it. So the difference in education was that if I'd gone to special school, if I'd been really, really lucky, I'd have been able to sit four CSEs. And that, that was the most you could sit in the school. And as it was the mainstream school I went to, I did, you know, 11 O levels, 4A levels, went to uni. I never would have done that. So I wouldn't have had my career in sport without going to mainstream school. And how has that affected you as a mum? bringing up your daughter in terms of what you learnt from that? <laughs> um, oh, that's really funny. We, we are so disorganised as parents. Um, she kind of, re her rebellion against us is, is to go to bed at sensible times and have an incredibly tidy room and to mostly look at us in a really disapproving way. Um, I think some, some of it, what it taught was, is actually you've just got to let your kids lead their own lives. Because when she was a day old... I had my first phone call saying that I think she was going to be an athlete. And it was like, I'm still in my pyjamas. No, I'd, I mean, it was a real, I'd never really held a baby till I had Karis. 
because I wasn't really very interested in babies or children. So it was all a bit of a shock. But she's asked constantly, are you a runner? Do you want to be an Olympian? She deals with it really, really well. I feel guilty about it because no one ever said to me, your dad was an architect. Is that what you're going to do? Or, you know, my mum trains a baker, you know. So the pressure she has, and it's it's interesting, I guess, you know, kind of feel guilty for all. That's the bit I feel guilty with her is that she has this pressure of people assuming that she she's going to be a runner or, or something like that. And so I guess a lot of it is just you've got to let them do what they want to do. Now, you're married to Ian, who's your husband, but he was also your athletics coach, wasn't he? And, and was he also a sort of training partner at some point? He started off as a training partner. Actually, we met when I was 17. He was 21. I was just about to go to Loughborough. He was doing his PhD at Manchester. So we'd gone to a first training weekend together for the GB squad. And the first thing he said to me is, um, you're going to Loughborough? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, that's just a PE college. So I didn't speak to him for about five years. And then he very, very slowly grew on me. So yeah, training partner, can't remember quite which way it was, sort of boyfriend, coach, husband. Anyway. So get that order right. Yeah, I've no idea. Um, <laughs> it, it's interesting because if you ask him, he would say I'm uncoachable. He would say I'm, I'm the most difficult person he ever had to coach. Because, Why? Why? <laughs> um, because I I like doing things my way. Um, and I'm not always very good at listening. Oh, I try really hard to be better at listening. Yeah, I, I have some quite sort of defined views on, on what I'd like to do. So I like to think of it as I helped him improve, you know, his people skills. And I helped him become a much, much better coach. Um, but um, yeah, it, it's interesting. I, I, I've always, your career in sport is quite short. And, and mine was kind of longer than probably most on average because I stayed injury free. And that's partly because I was obsessed with staying injury free. But also I kind of wanted to be in control of my career because you've only got, you know, a short time to achieve the things you want to do in sport. So it was too important to me to, to let other people be in charge of it. You, that's interesting. You say you, you, one of your big drivers was to stay injury free. That's massive if that's your career. So how did you do that? So we used to do do loads of prehab exercises in wheelchair racing your shoulders are so important so I think we did them before they were even called prehab it was about you know actually my my very first coach it was about you know not getting injured and the exciting bit is is training and and, I mean that's not anywhere near as exciting as competing the boring stuff is everything else you do around it which is you know making sure you eat right sleep right do your exercises do your physio that was built into what I did from being really young and it's helped helped me you know now in way into retirement I mean my, my body's a bit of a mess but not as much as it it could have been and I think you know there is a price you pay for being involved in elite sport but it's you know you, you've got to try and minimize the the risk to your long-term health and, and are you good at listening to your body yeah I think I am <laughs> oh, that's a really interesting question the problem I have is I've always got a really long list of things I want to do so I'm not very good at saying no to things. I think I'm relatively okay at prioritising. But um, yeah, that, that's an interesting one. I, I can survive for a very long time on not much sleep. And then when I do crash, I, I you know crash big time. And that's probably from your drive to be the best version of yourself, do you think? I mean, what, what is it? Because when you want to be the best at something, you want to put in all the work that needs to be there. But... It's also a fine balance, isn't it, between doing as much as you need, but also getting that rest. You know, I, I trained with lots of athletes who trained very hard, but you've got to train smart. Um, and there's no point, you know, training until you break down or 
not getting enough sleep or not eating the right things. So there is that balance. I, I think what I was good at doing as an athlete was making myself do the things I didn't like doing, which was the things I wasn't as good at. So I was useless at starts uh, pretty much my whole career. And, you know, slightly tricky if you're a sprinter, but... 200 was fine. Actually, the problem I had with the 100 metres was that I could push very, very quickly. I just took longer to get to my top speed than everyone else. So my top speed was better than most other people in the world. So it was whether I ran out of space. So actually, I would have loved the 100 metres to be 110 metres, but it's not. So, But what we used to do is we practice starts every single day in training. I mean, partly that's psychology because then... You're doing it every day, so you get it over and done with rather than one or two sessions a week, which you dread and then don't enjoy and don't perform well at. So some of it's just about psychology, but it's it's about doing all the things that you don't enjoy because then that's where you get the biggest improvements. And that's true in work. It's true in not just in sport. It's, you know, I'd be lying if I said, you know, I answered my emails in the order they came in in the morning. <laughs> but, you know, I do I do try to kind of carry that out in, you know, into my life now. Now, obviously, you have your lovely daughter, Karis. How did you um, how did you plan that into your busy training schedule? So, I mean, I competed in Sydney, which was my fourth games, had got back. And then sort of the end of 2000, early 2001, I started thinking about the next four years. So I'd started back training, but was thinking about the next four years and then thought, oh, mm, actually, I'm running out of time to have a baby. And uh, it was a relatively short conversation, which was, actually, I wanted a dog. And, and luckily, she does know this, which is fine. And Ian said, oh, actually, a dog's going to be really hard. We probably should have a baby. And I was like, oh, yeah, baby's going to be way easier than a dog. <laughs> so it comes back, I, I'd never held a child. And then, yeah, I just got out of the training schedule and I actually had to look online to see how many weeks it takes to have a baby. Because what does nine months mean? I mean, it's what is it? And then I remember being really shocked and saying to me, do you realise it's 40 weeks? That's like a really long time. That's, you know, 10 training cycles. So we, we had a cutoff day. You know, we sat down and we talked about it. And if I wasn't pregnant by a certain date, we, you know, we weren't going to have a baby. And and that was about wanting to do Commonwealth Games and then going, you know, I knew it, even at that point that Athens was going to be my last Paralympics. So it was about trying to, to slot it all in. And, you know, I'm am, I am a bit of a control freak. <laughs> I'm, I'm in way calmer now than I used to be. But it was like, OK, if we're going to do this, I need to have some some kind of control over it. And I trained all the way through and, you know, it was it was all actually fine and do you do you find female athletes talk to you about this do, do, do athletes ask you now like today how do you do it how do you fit it in Danny? yeah I mean you still I mean it, it's such a big consideration for female athletes which male athletes don't have to think about things in in the same way and I think there's some bits which were good because she just traveled the world with us and we, we used to put her in the long jump pit with a bucket and spade when she was little and she used to just build sandcastles and you know, dressed her in, you know, tracks are really safe places because they tend to have, you know, a lot of fences and dress her in fluorescent baby groves. I'm never going to write a parenting manual. It's just, and you'd say to her, do you want to go to the beach? And she'd be like, oh, and she'd get bucket and spade. And we meant track. And then I do remember the first time she saw a real beach. She was just like a little face. I wish I'd taken a picture because she was like, oh, it's so big. You know, as opposed to... Yeah, it, as opposed yeah. to sort of bit of water in the steeplechase. Yeah, she I saw think, the sea. Yeah, she's, she's fine now. I mean, I think she's over it. But um, I'm, I'm not sure. She thinks she remembers it, but I, I don't know if she does or not. But it's all just about, you know, you just try and find a way through. And actually at races especially track meets it used to be really funny because there's always loads of other athletes who are parents or I do remember competing in quite a low level UK based race and I was away from her for about how do she'd been about six five or six 
And again, really, really safe place. But I'd, I'd been away from her for about three minutes to do a 400 meter race. And I came back and she had an ice cream. And I said, where did you get that? And she said, oh, one of the officials. And she named them. And I went over and I said, oh, that's really sweet. You know, thank you for buying her ice cream. And he said, oh, well, we saw Kara sitting there on the floor. And we said, are you okay? And Kara said, mummy always leaves me. And she promised to buy me an ice cream, but she hasn't got time. And so she got an ice cream. And then we found out that actually she'd done that to quite a few officials. So I had to go around to them all and say, it's really sweet. But can you, you know, she, she's playing you. She played you. <laughs> you know, so, um, yeah, we, we, we stopped that. So, um, yeah, it was very sweet. Um, priceless. You've competed in five Paralympic Games. You've 11 gold medals, four silvers and a bronze. You have 13 World Championship medals, six gold, five silver and two bronze. You have also won the Women's London Wheelchair Marathon six times. I mean, I read these things out and I have to literally pinch myself when I'm speaking to people about their achievements because they are remarkable. Has there been a moment in your career that you will never forget? I mean, there's a couple. I mean, I think Athens was was a really big one for me because in one games there was sort of huge lows and then highs. Um, so I completely messed up my 100-meter final and I'd been unbeaten for 12 years over that distance and made a split-second decision, which was the wrong one, and that was pretty miserable. You know, came off the track and Ian and I had a, quite a robust discussion about what I'd done because I'd, I'd just misread the race and I misread where I was, which kind of happens. It's just a shame it happens in a really massive final. And um, I remember leaving the track and everyone saying to me, that was rubbish. Like, I know, I was there. You know, so there was, a, and then the team's really interesting because you know everyone's there doing their own thing, but you know you've got athletics and swimming who deliver lots of medals. You maybe have basketball where they have such limited medal chances, and if you do really well, you get back to the village, no one says anything. And you know because the age you was, I knew lots of people from different sports really well. I remember coming back into the village, and just one of the lads from the basketball team had seen it on TV in the village, and just came and hugged me and said, "You're right," and it was like, "Oh." If I'd won a gold medal, it would have blanked me or been rude to me. You know, it's a, so that was quite hard to deal with. But then, you know, three days later, coming back and winning the 100, which is my weakest event. I think those two moments kind of define my whole career because you don't have a right to win anything. You don't have a right to be selected. Or, um, But for me, it was those two moments so close together. It was like the worst of the worst and then the best of the best within three days of each other. How hard do you have to train? Um, yeah, I've done twice a day, six days a week, 50 weeks of the year. You know, I said Bertha Karras was based around my competition schedule, my wedding was. Actually, my sister's wedding was. I mean, I never had to sacrifice anything because it was always my choice. My family tolerated loads. So, you know, when my sister decided she wanted to get married in 2000, which was Sydney, which is like, oh, OK, I'm going to be away a lot of the year. She got married earlier in the year, you know, partly because then, then I could be there. And you go, that is just amazing. So the stuff your family go through. Is, is you know you you ultimately choose to be away from them but um yeah it's lots and then if you add in everything else from fixing wheels and building chairs and all it's 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 a big time commitment do you miss it no <laughs> so i miss having triceps i used to have really 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 well-defined triceps I miss that a bit no um you know when the sun's shining and the wind's blowing in the right direction and you think oh do you know it'd be and if I was pushing my best, I would like to be out on the road right now. Um, but then you remember actually the blisters and the tiredness and just the fatigue and how much massages hurt. And then you go, oh, no. Oh. But I think part, partly it was a bit, you've got this limited time to achieve, so you have to do it. So you can't regret anything because you, you haven't got time to do that. So 
There's a couple of races. Um, I I'd thought about maybe um, doing another London Marathon when I was 50. And I got in my racing chair and did about four kilometres. It was like, yeah, I don't want to do 42K. Like, I'm done. I really don't need to do another marathon to prove anything to myself at all. So, um, yeah, I no, I, I, I don't want to do that again. How important is it to have a support network around you as an athlete? And have you taken that forward in your life since retiring? Yeah, I mean, the people you have around you are so important, whether it's coaches, training partners. We had you know, team dietitian and physio and masseur and some of those people are still in my life, which is amazing, you know, and I've got, you know, training partners. Actually, it was quite, so sorry, I just remembered it. I was actually at European Championships when I realised I, I thought I was probably pregnant. And um, I think I actually mentioned it to my training partner, Jason, before I mentioned it to Ian, because we were warming up for a race and Ian couldn't get there. And Jason had gone to get me a coffee and came back and I was like, oh, I'm going to be sick. And I went, oh, because I drink a lot of coffee. And it was like, oh, Jace, I think I'm pregnant. He's like, does Ian know? I went, no, not yet. But maybe because you're racing before me, you could mention to him on the way out. So you get, sorry, kind of a few money. But when you're in it, that seems really normal. It's when you're outside, you realise it's absolutely not. But, you know, some of those people are still around and support me. But the critical friends are really important, you know, because actually if you're winning, people tell you you're brilliant. But And losing, people think you're rubbish. It's not as binary as that. The result's binary, but there's so many layers to whether you win or don't win that you need those critical friends. And, and that's absolutely true in politics. You need those, those critical friends as well. Why did you retire in 2007? Had enough. Um, it was really simple. Um, you know, I knew uh, Athens was going to be last, my last games. I knew that, you know, going into it, it didn't feel quite the right time to stop because it actually, you know, even though I'd had a very bad race and then won two goals... It, it didn't feel that I'd quite done enough and I, I thought I could maybe do another World Championships but uh, the plan was always to stop at 2006 and then I, uh, I was sick the whole of the year and it was I got the chance to do one more race because the World Champs were in Europe and um, I got a chance to do one more race in 2007 on home soil and I was like okay actually if I do that it's a really nice way to say goodbye I can have lots of friends and family around who wouldn't normally travel, and I, I could do it. So it was. I was mentally and physically broken. I was 37, and you just didn't heal or repair in the same way. And I wanted to do something else. I, I got tired of um, the relentlessness of it. And it's a massive privilege to compete as an athlete, but I, I just had enough. Dave Moorcroft said to me back in the mid-90s, you know, be really sure when you stop because, you know, you're a long time retired and once you stop, you can't go back. So although those extra two and a bit years were really horrible, I'm really glad I did them now because it made me absolutely sure that I was completely and utterly done, that there was there was nothing left when, when I stopped. And did you know what you wanted to do next at that point? Um, I had a reasonable idea. I mean, i I'd done lots of other things while I was competing. And so I absolutely knew what I didn't want to do, which I think's good. Because if you've been a successful athlete, you do get lots of offers to do lovely, weird and marvellous and strange things. And actually being able to have the confidence to say, no, that's not what I'm good at, um, I think is, is really important. Uh, I think I was always going to end up in politics sort of somewhere. So the plan had always been when I finished to do a law conversion. Uh, and then and take it from there. Uh, I'd actually wanted to do law as a degree, but at Loughborough they didn't offer that, so I did politics. So yeah, that was the plan was law conversion. And then I, I got the chance to be in the House of Lords. So 
log conversion went slightly out the window. So um, um, so I think it's where I was. I always wanted to be, just in a slightly different place. Can you describe what you do in the House of Lords? <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, it's like you spend a lot of time bashing your head into a brick wall. I mean, what we're there to do is try and improve legislation. You know, we are, we're nominated, we're not elected, we're not there to run the country. Our job is to say to the government of the day, are you really sure this is what you want to do? Because if you do that, this is what's going to happen. But if you do that, you might get this. So, you know, we're a check and balance. Um, but every day is different. Sometimes you can make a brilliant speech in the chamber and it doesn't do anything. Sometimes you can actually not say that much in the chamber, but you take people with you in a different way. So it's about people and it's about networking. It's about um, spending time there. Part of it's actually really similar to sport. You need to know the rules and then figure out how you fit within that. So uh, it is an amazing place to be. It's the least misogynistic place I've ever worked by far. And it's full of really interesting people. But um yeah, there is no one day that is ever the same because, you know, I went from knowing two years out what day and time I'd be competing at a Paralympic final and the weather conditions for 100 years before that to not having a clue whether I'm speaking next Tuesday, Thursday or three weeks from now. So that for me is the biggest change is letting go of the the, the order and, and just sort of being much more adaptable to what, what's happening around. And how easy is that as a control freak? I really struggled for quite a long time. <laughs> it's funny. Um, it's things like, you know, we don't always know when there are votes and trying to work out those things. And I remember my first couple of months there, I'd sit in the chamber for like five hours before, you know, a vote came or because it's like in case I miss. And then it, it's just, again, it's learning the process and the rules. And so I think I've gone the other way. I've, I've probably, um, it'd be interesting if any of my family agree with this, that I'm more laid back about things than... Because there's so much outside my... You know, in, in sport, you can't control whether you're selected or not. You can't control what anyone does in a race. So there's loads you can't control. The bit I could control was my training. So I guess it's a bit the same. The bit I can control in politics is being briefed and, you know, prepped and reading lots of notes. And I was in a debate recently where someone said, oh, that was amazing off-the-cuff speech. And it's like, well, I've actually been thinking about it for a year. I mean, not all... On and off. But I'd, I'd spent about a year thinking, okay, what... What would I say to this and, and planning it out? So the, the control freakish nature is still there. It's just there in a, I think, slightly different way. Do you ever get nervous speaking at the House of Lords? No. no um, there's a bit of anticipation. No, it's not. So it's good because when I competed, I threw up before every single race I did. So luckily I don't get that because that would be really horrible. No, there's, there's sometimes... It's hard to say the mood of the... But sometimes you can really feel the mood of the chamber... And you can feel whether people are with you or against you. And sometimes there are moments which are really exciting where there's big bits of legislation when there's votes and things happening. The hardest bit's getting in sometimes because we're not time limited. And so, you know, we can debate until everyone said what they want to say. So the bit I can't do is I can't bob to kind of let people know that I, I want to speak. But I have to say, you know, government and, and opposition peers are really good at... You know, if it's a debate on sport or physical activity, of looking around the chamber and sort of going, do you want to speak? And and we have a way of pointing, and it's not meant to point in the chamber, but people are very good at giving way in terms of, of speaking. So, yeah, the, the bit is, the bobbing bit is about the only bit that I, I, I struggle to do. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that, actually. So how so how, so is that up to whoever's chairing the debate to make sure everyone contributes or no? We, we don't. So we're a self-regulating chamber. So what happens is everyone who wants to speak sort of stands up and the chamber looks around 
and then decides who's got you know priority and then everyone else sits down so it is fascinating so if it's a debate on sport i'll get in really high up you know if it's something else then i might not but but it's the way that everyone looks around go oh right okay you know more on that than i do and and then makes that it's it's really weird to trying to describe it but um the chief whip does have a an ability to stand up and and say I mean, it's very interesting language that uh, he believes you know that the chamber would like to hear from baroness gray thompson which basically means she's speaking next sit down you lot but it's very polite and that doesn't happen very often it's only in um you know very very occasionally where i'm trying to get in and and you can't but it's amazing how it all just sort of it all sort of works I'm wondering if you've got a better ability than the average person on the street to read a mood because of your experience in sport, or is that me just making up? Um, Because, you know, if you're thinking about an arena that you're performing mm. in, in a sports arena, I mean, there's so many similarities, aren't there, in in many ways. But, you know, you know if you've got the crowd on your side or if you haven't. Yeah. Is that the same kind of idea in there or not quite as clear-cut? Sometimes you do. I mean, it's it's interesting, you know, if there's a big vote, so there's some stuff I did in welfare form where it was getting ready for me to decide whether it, we voted or not on a particular subject and the chamber was, like, packed full. And, yeah, sometimes you can feel whether people are with you or against you. It's not always based on the number of people speak in your favour or not, but there are moments where you've, you've got a good idea about what's going to happen and then there's sometimes you don't. Because sometimes there might be a debate where there's not many in the chamber but then there's loads of people in the building outside. That's the one you've got to try and guess is how many people are actually in the building and then sometimes for me, some of the stuff I work on, the best you can hope for is that someone abstains. You know, there's people that would never vote with me, but if you can persuade them to vote or to not vote, then 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 you're in a good place. And what are you working towards currently changing at the moment? Um, so I'm still doing a lot around sports. So a group of us have just got positions of trust legislation through, which means it's now illegal for a coach to be in a sexual relationship with a 16 and 17 year old. It's crazy that that wasn't in before. Um, and the next thing I'm working on is mandatory reporting of abuse, neglect. And that's for all children, not just in the sports context. It's actually about, you know, the the bit I, where I have more knowledge is about the sports sector. And it's about trying to track behaviour of coaches and unsavoury people who come to sports to, to have access to children. And it's about trying to, to stop some of those things happening. So if you look at the football, you know, scandals or, or other sports that have been through it, you know, where children have been abused, it's actually trying to pick up those things much, much earlier. It's it's going to be a tough one to get through because there's a lot of people in, in the UK who don't think that we need that legislation. But there's a lot of people who do. And so when you go to work every day, you're working on these kind of activities. They aren't things you can easily solve overnight, are they? They they, they take time. So how do you how do you, you know, keep pushing on these these big issues? I mean, it's something like positions of trust. I've been working on it for seven years on and off. And people have been, you know, Sarah Champion, MP, um, have been working on it for way longer. So some of it is about actually connecting to people who work in that area. And, you know, Sarah was like really encouraging and supportive. I think as well, because I come from a, a life where everything's four year cycles, you don't suddenly get good overnight in sports. So you, you have to do, you know, either something every day or every week to contribute to that. So and, and then it's just about looking for the opportunity. You know, positions of trust came in and, you know, we all thought we were going to have to amend the sexual offences bill. And turns out something got put in the police bill so we could get it through. So you're always looking for opportunities to, to attach things or to find a way of elbowing in some discussion about you, what you want to try and change. So, But again, that's quite similar to sport because you're always looking for an opportunity, you know, to train in a different way or be open-minded about the training you're doing. So again, it's lots of similarities in 
terms of what you do. You know, there's in sport, no one gives it to you on a plate. In politics, because I'm an independent, I don't have this party machinery behind me. It's down to me to look for the opportunities where you can have that discussion. And whether you like it or not, you are a celebrity. How do the public treat you? So I get treated three really distinct ways. So one is the disabled woman, where I do experience discrimination. One is a parliamentarian, where people love me or hate me. Not much in the middle. And then the nicest way is as an ex-athlete. I thought when I retired that I would just people would just stop saying, "Oh, you're that athlete." But they, you know, they still do, and it's really sweet. And I was at a petrol station before Tokyo last year, and this guy stopped me. And he was like, "Oh, you're the athlete, aren't you?" And it's like, "Well, yeah." And he went, "Oh, you know, how's the training going?" And then you go, "What? It's all very British. Like, what do I say?" What? And he's like, "Oh, good luck for Tokyo." And it's like I'm commentating. Um, so you never know quite. To, oh, the other one, which I think is really funny which people don't mean to be rude at all. There's two bits. I either get people coming up to me saying, oh, you're not as skinny as you used to be. Like, no, I'm not training 12 times a week anymore. Or my favourite one is where people start, especially if I'm in the supermarket or something, and they'll just say, yeah. do you know, the BBC have got really good makeup artists. I go, yeah, they have. Because you don't look like that in real life at all. And you go, no, no, I don't. And then at some point they realise that they've, you know, been slightly impolite. But people don't mean it because you're in their living room, or you know, and, and they treat you like family. So some of that stuff I, I think is really sweet and really funny um, and, and is quite nice. So, yeah, the, the, the ex-athlete bit is, is generally really lovely. Um, and presumably people write to you regularly and ask you to, you know, for, around issues. Mm. So how do you deal with that? Because that must be an awful lot of admin. It is. I mean, you just have to try and get through it. So, you know, we we don't have any admin support in the Lords. So some of it is about, you know, either directing people to MPs or trying to find uh, experts who can help. There's there's lots of different routes that you can try and signpost people to. And sometimes you can't help people. And sometimes people write to us because they have nowhere else to go to. So that is, you know, quite a big responsibility in terms of what we do on a on a day-to-day basis um I, I do have someone who used to write to me who um wanted me to fix their potholes outside the house and I remember writing back saying oh, I can write to the councillor and he's like no 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 I want you to come and do it it's like I'm really not very good at fixing roads and he's like oh baby lovely if you did I was like oh I can't remember how I dealt with that in the end but I've just said no no I think I think you need to get someone who actually knows how to fix it but that was that was really sweet that they thought that like me with a bucket of tar could come and fix their road so um yeah that that was an interesting one i mean you mentioned earlier that you know you have had to face discrimination how do you deal with that personally it's it's really hard because i'm sort of conscious that as an ex-athlete and a parliamentarian that you can't always say what you want so sometimes it is upsetting or it makes me very angry but i try to kind of balance that because it's about trying to educate people to to understand that's not the way to treat somebody but it is really difficult you know so pre-covid i was getting on the tube at half seven in the morning somebody said to me oh it's the rush hour yeah it's half seven and um people have got jobs to go to you should travel when it's more quiet and this kind of quite discriminatory conversation and stuff like that and it for me i've sometimes just have to walk away because it's um, it's sometimes quite hard to deal with. Or I get a bit of, you know, people like you can't get on the train. Or, you know, pe- yeah, people like you, is that's the one thing that, that really annoys me. Because it's making a massive judgment about me as a wheelchair user. So sometimes I try and have a t- conversation with somebody. Sometimes I walk away. You know, sometimes you try and sort of go back and, you know, and educate people afterwards. But it's not always easy to deal with because it's quite... Um, 
sometimes it's quite constant the the low level discrimination and it, that's hard because you can't can't take a court case this it's hard to prove it's just part of what what builds your, your resilience and part of what I do why I do what I do now is because trying to do something to to change that and um, you know sports done quite a lot to help sh- partly shift some attitudes towards certainly disabled athletes hasn't necessarily fixed everything else but I think my dad I'm a mum in different ways always told me that I had a very privileged upbringing which I did and okay it's it's about you know finding a voice and helping other people find because I can't speak on behalf of other people but it's about helping other people find their voice and helping other people to to sort things out so yeah that's partly why I do what I do and do you think things have got better or not really Mm, they've shifted a bit but um you know I still deal with cases of disabled children who are excluded from school and at the start of the pandemic you know compulsory do not attempt resuscitation orders were put on thousands of disabled people with no line health and no underlying health conditions and that was partly to to ration you know ventilators but it basically said to a whole pile of disabled people you have no value so you know 60% of the people who died from COVID had some form of disability or impairment so you know it's 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 pretty hard stuff that we're dealing with and you know trains were meant to be step free January the 1st 2020 every single government has allowed derogations to that so it's now going to be 2070 before trains in the UK are step free so you know as much as you know 2012 and the Paralympics were lovely and they were incredible games it didn't fix the world so there's still a big long list of things that we we need to be fighting for to even you know think about achieving equality let alone you know some people say oh disabled people want so much well I just want the same miserable experience of commuting on a train as everyone else and I don't get that you know I aspire to the same miserable experience of everyone else you know so I mean I use humor quite a lot because it's the only way I can do it without screaming so um you know uh there's still this big long list of things that we need to do Yes, I was just going to mention your humour, which is, you know, through this conversation has shone through. Is that a way of you keeping yourself motivated, dealing with stuff? Is that one of your go-to strengths? Yeah, I think so. And and um, I think it stops me swearing at people, which is generally a good thing. <laughs> because, you know, I, I, I have been in situations where I've, you know, someone has been quite patronising towards me and I've lost my temper. And, you know, it's not... You feel great for about three minutes, but it actually doesn't fix the problem and it doesn't help educate somebody to to understand why they shouldn't do that. So, um, yeah, for me. So when I get um, people like you can't do that, my response usually is, what do you mean Welsh people? And you go, oh, oh, sorry, but or did you mean wheelchair users? And that kind of stops without being massively confrontational. Um, and hopefully it leaves the other person some way out of it. But it, it gets them to think about about what they've said. But... I mean, I've probably, that took me about 20 years to get to the point of using being Welsh as, as, you know, that kind of response. And have you got any advice for people in terms of what people can do to make this issue not an issue anymore? I mean, what practical things can people do? Well, I think, you know, there's, there's recent research that shows that so many people have never spoken to a disabled person. And, you know, sitting in a wheelchair doesn't give you any concept of actually what it's like to be a wheelchair user every single day you know I think it's just you know there's plenty of stuff online you can read and there's there's plenty of different ways that you can just be more understanding about and the trouble is we're not one homogenous group because everyone's got different needs and different experiences and different ways of coping with things so I think as an athlete you you develop loads of resilience which helps you 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 cope with things but I I post quite a lot on social media about my train experiences partly because it's quite a good way to have a bit of a shout 
but also then it just educates other people. So I was on a train this weekend and we got into the mainline train station and three different people walking past me to get off the train said, oh, is someone going to come and get you? Because we've seen you tweet. And, and so that's, you know, really good because then it's educating other people to kind of go, don't just walk off and leave somebody. And one of those people just stood and waited on the platform till they saw a member of staff coming to get me, which is really sweet because actually that solves some of the problems. So some of it is about, you know, educating people. And um, I did have a friend um, who she'd seen me tweeting quite a lot about it. And then she was on a train where a wheelchair user, um, nobody came to help them off. So she just grabbed like three blokes and they asked the wheelchair user first whether they would mind being lifted off the train. And the person said, no, that would be fine. And they just sort of like the individual off the train. So not that is not an ideal situation, but in the short term, it meant that that disabled person wasn't going to end up a couple of, you know, stations down the line where they didn't want to go. Yeah, and it's about, I suppose, people, you know, giving, you know, people being confident enough to say something or to ask at least, rather than just not say anything for fear of embarrassment or for upsetting somebody um, and just not walking off. Yeah, and, and it's also, it's about listening because if, if you think a disabled person's struggling... And you ask them, do they want help? And they say no. Then you do walk off. But then I've had a situation. Well, there's a couple of things. A friend of mine is visually impaired and she works quite close to the RNIB in London. And several times a week, people grab her and try to take her there because obviously they all they all work there. You know, and you sort of laugh a bit about that. But actually, she's really wearing. But I've also been at Canary Wharf and had a rucksack on the back of the chair, one on my shoulders, a bag on my knee. I was on the phone to my husband, so I was kind of walking, pushing, you know, with my phone and sort of in the crook of my neck. And this woman asked me, did I want help? And I said, no. I mean, several times. And then she just decided to push me somewhere I didn't want to go. So then, being very British, I didn't want to be rude to her. So I then said, oh, well, this is the building I want to go into. Thank you, that's really kind. So I kind of went through, and then it was quite a secure building. And then I didn't explain very well to the security guard. So I said, oh, sorry, I, can I just sit here for two minutes because I just need to get away from her. And then he thought there was a much bigger sort of security threat against me. So he was like, he, he got his phone out and started dialing 999. And he was like, no, no, no. She just pushed me up the road a bit where I didn't want to go. And, and he was like, yeah, didn't you? I was like, why didn't... I mean, anyway, you get all this very British... I'm like, I'll just sit here for a bit and I'll go. And he was like, yeah, OK. So you get these moments like that, which, you know, it was kind of funny-ish, but so, sometimes it's also quite irritating. Actually, that just reminds me of a story and a complete aside here. But a friend of mine was speaking to her granny and she was saying how, you know, stopping on the side of the pavement just to look at a tree, some kind passerby would just cross her over. She didn't really yeah. want to go over there. <laughs> she didn't have the heart to yeah, say. So thank you. And then she had to wait for ages for someone else to cross her back. <laughs> yeah, you do get these oh, moments. Goodness yeah. me. You love to read. Mm. What are you reading at the moment? Oh, God. I've got about six books on the go at the moment. I'm reading a book about salt. Interesting. So the history of salt and sort of the political use of salt. Yeah, which is interesting. I'm also reading some legislation, Australian legislation on mandatory reporting, which is not exactly bedtime reading. What else am I reading? I, I, I read, I mean, the wonderful thing about e-readers is you can pretend you're reading War and Peace where you're actually reading something really trashy. So um, I, I do have an e-reader which goes everywhere with me. So I, I normally have about five or six books on the go at the same time. And it drives in mad how many books I've got because I do have a lot. And he probably only knows about half of the ones I've got because my office is in work is rammed with books. So um, I, I, I did say to my roommate, because we all share offices, said, if anything happens to me, you've got to get rid of the books like just Ian can't know actually how many books I've bought because he, he would be a bit fed up with me. What do you do to relax? 
spend time with my family. I'm not great at relaxing. I like what I do. Most of it is good, interesting work. I mean, some of it's really dull and boring. So, you know, but um, yeah, probably spend time with my family, watch TV, watch some fairly um, trashy films. I kind of like action adventure stuff. So, um, yeah, Karis tolerates me watching that. So we, we normally watch those with a healthy dose of cynicism because um, they're all a bit stupid. But, um, yeah, time with my family is the most precious thing because I'm away from home four days a week, at least four days a week. And uh, so I, I try and make sure that I have time with them. So, you know, for me, lockdown, first lockdown was amazing. And then I feel a bit guilty over it because I know a lot of people had a really miserable time. But that's the longest I've been at home in 20 years in one stretch. So me that was amazing to spend that time with with Karis and, and Ian. Now you must meet amazing people in your job and obviously being a, a, a former professional athlete as well. Is there anyone out there that you'd love to meet in your list of kind of heroes that you think oh do you know? I'd be fascinated to, to meet Bill Clinton just or Hillary Clinton yeah actually both of them together actually that's a bit of a cop out. Um have you met Michelle Obama, by the way? Yeah, I have. Have you? Yeah. How was that? Amazing. Absolutely amazing. And uh, Barack as well. Uh, I went to this really surreal dinner at number 10, Beyond Surreal, where it was G20, and there was a separate dinner for the wives of the G20. So it's Gordon Brown, Sarah Brown, and um, the women in the room, just stunning. Absolutely stunning. And like, as wives, you're thinking, they should run the world. And then there were several other guests there, and there was Naomi Campbell, uh, J.K. Rowling, uh, Ruth Jones, and I ended up in this really surreal moment. I shouldn't admit this. I was sitting next to the wife of the Japanese Prime Minister, and she was, and Ruth was sitting over the other side of the table. And through a translator, she asked me what Ruth did, and I said, "Oh, an actress." And then I started trying to explain Gavin and Stacey to her <laughs> through a translator. Go, right, you've got this this girl from Barry, and, and my Welsh accent comes back really strong. And then you know when you get into something, you go, "Just shut up, Tanny." I should have just said actress, comedian, writer, and yeah. So that's where I, I met the Obamas. Absolutely incredible moment. Yeah. What was it like to me? I'm sorry, I was a slight kind of fan of. What was it? What is is Michelle as she appears? Sort of when you see her on the telly, is she like that in real life? Is she? A- yeah, stunning, uh, bright, smart, intelligent, really well thought through the things that we were kind of discussing. So the rest of the conversation was slightly more high level than Gavin and Stacey. Just amazing. And then over coffee, the two separate dinners sort of came together, and uh, Barack came into the room went straight to Michelle and then kind of worked the ring. And he came up to me and said, uh, hello, Tani, I'm Barack Obama. It's, it's a great pleasure to meet you. And he's like, uh, and I can't remember what I said. Hopefully I didn't sound like a complete and utter idiot, but um, I'm not entirely sure about that. But um, yeah, just there's, there's, pe- there's some people that just have like an aura around them, you know, that are just in- incredible. And both of them had that. What haven't I asked you? Oh, I don't think you haven't asked me anything. But- <laughs> Uh, I'll tell you one thing I'd love yeah. I'd love you to do before we finish I, I always like to just try and pick out I'm going to put you on the spot a little mm. bit here pick out three things that you have experienced through your remarkable career that you could just hand on to anybody listening they don't have to be big things but just three things that you have learnt through your experience the first thing would be Try not to make rash decisions about things. It's really easy when something is very emotional or emotive or 
you know, you're in a situation where something's going really well in your life or really badly in your life to, to make those quick decisions. There's been many, many points in my life where it's been really high and really low, where it's just kind of stopping before you take that next step uh, is important. Hard work. You know, there's not there's not all shortcuts. I mean, there are times when you can get away with things, you know, reading a brief note and kind of flying by the seat of your pants a bit. I don't enjoy doing that. That There have been meetings that I've gone into just because of the pressure that I've been under that, that you have to do that. But actually, it's about getting in the hard work. And then I think actually related to that is about having an honest conversation with yourself or finding people to have an honest conversation with you about what you're really doing and and what you need to do. Because it's lovely to be told you're brilliant, but that doesn't achieve much. You actually, I've probably got four or five people in my life who will sit me down and say, yeah, that was good. No, that wasn't. Sort your life out. And and those people are really, really important to me. So that on, honest conversation, you can't fib to yourself about what you're doing. So that they're the kind of the, the three big things that I try and live by. Thank you, Tani. And on behalf of everyone who's been listening, thank you so much for joining our Brilliant Mind podcast. And if you'd like more information about Tani and her amazing achievements, please visit the HDL website and search for Brilliant Minds in Conversation, where you can hear this podcast and uh, read Harvey's first-hand account of the story behind how we came to meet and work with Tani. Until next time, thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.